Hello and welcome to the Thinking Not Podcast. I'm Cap and I'm joined remotely by my good friend A. Charles. Charlie, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded something together due to a virus getting in the way. Tell me, what did you miss most in that time? My analytical mind or my multicolored index cards? Uh, neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it wasn't my magic trick, so all right, we've got a. I, uh, I missed you. <laughs> okay, we've got a very interesting episode today that came recommended because of the recent Uvalde discussion, and for the first time ever, we're going to be joined by a guest, someone for whom this topic is very personal. One of the Things that I noted, Charlie, in the Uvalde discussion was the gender-specific qualities that contribute to gun violence. And while gun violence and mental health is by no means just a male phenomenon, there are tendencies that are usually male tendencies that accompany heinous acts like Buffalo or Uvalde. So today, we're going to talk about male emotional intelligence and how we can develop it ourselves and in the young men around us. And maybe a little bit about the role society plays in some of this. So, Charles, are you ready to dive into the shallow end of the male gene pool? Yeah, I'm probably going to break my neck, but yeah. <laughs> All right, Charlie's ready, I'm ready, and our guest is ready and waiting. So let's grab a cup of coffee and chat. The Thinking Knot is a podcast developed to help those who are trying to become better, a little bit better today than yesterday. It is an honest dialogue about the real-life challenges we each encounter as intention meets obstacle in the course of an every day. In our conversation, we weigh rational thought against our gut feeling of what is right, and we forge a path together using what is in our hearts, if we can all just awaken and get into rhythm with that beat. Thanks for joining today's discussion. Let me start by welcoming in our guest today, Jaron is a fellow seeker of goodness in life and is joining us from Virginia, where he lives with his wife and son. Most recently, he served as an associate researcher with an evaluation firm, which enhances programs that support individuals with mental health and substance abuse disorders within the criminal justice system. But he also has some prior experience that I'm hoping he'll tell us about that is pertinent to our discussion today. Welcome, Jaron. Thanks so much, Craig. Thanks, Charlie. I appreciate you guys having me on. Oh, it's so great to see you. Yeah, we're delighted. And we are, we're seeing each other, although we're remote, we're, we're doing video. So let's go ahead and get started, Jaron, with just, you know, we, we introduced you, but your son is how old? He's nine. He'll be 10 in August. Great. So, so you've got a young son, Charlie and I have grown sons, and we wanted to ask you to come on the podcast really for three reasons. So first, you're going through the process of raising a man right now. Your wife and you are in it. Um, second, you're a man who is supremely capable, but you do it by leading with your heart. And we always want to try to model that for our listeners. And then third, you've worked in the area of the justice system, criminal justice. And that gives you a particular view into this topic that I certainly don't have. I don't know, Charlie, if you have any experience in that realm, but that's why we wanted to have you on, Jaron. Why was this topic of interest to you? Yeah, I mean, after your uh, Uvalde podcast, um, it, it hit me. Obviously, after the shooting, my son's a fourth grader and my wife's a teacher at an elementary school. And so it was it was much closer to home for us days after the experience in Texas. And the idea of thinking about male emotional intelligence, males 
fit in the world um, has been really important to me actually since college. I, uh, when I was a college student, I was a, uh, a leader within the student life department. And I actually at the time put on a, an event for men to come together for a weekend retreat to talk about the things that men may struggle with. And there are cornerstones throughout my life and my career that have sort of tried to uh, intersect those things over and over and over again. And um, I've been fortunate to meet the two of you who are very, very interested in talking about the things that men have either struggled with or uh, do well or how to communicate more of who we are and what we need in the world. And so the opportunities to do this with you all while modeling for my nine-year-old son what it's like to communicate with other like-minded, interesting, caring, kind-hearted men is something I can never say no to. Well, that's great. That's great. And I know you and Charlie have uh, known each other for a while. You and I have known each other uh, for a short time, Jaron, but uh, really respect your view and your your take on uh, as you kind of go through the uh, earlier stages of your career, how you bring some of that mindfulness into the work that you do. So really appreciate that. So Charlie, let's begin the discussion with a question for you. And rather than just starting with what is potentially a flawed assumption that men and the male ego are a problem in need of a solution, let me instead ask you a general question. And this episode is not about guns or gun violence. It's about male emotional intelligence. But allow me just this one fork in the road. So, Men are behind 94% of the mass shootings in the U.S. from 2009 to 2020. And statistically, men also account for the vast majority of fatalities, 85%, and injuries, 87%, from gun violence. Worldwide, so not just in America, men commit about 90% of murders. Why do you think this is so? Are men just drawn to violence at a instinctual level? No. Now, <laughs> apart from that simple and true answer, we are not uh, drawn to violence on a primitive level. We resort to violence when other avenues of communication fail us. Sometimes we resort to it initially after a period of time because we just don't want to try even talking. We just go into combat mode, you know, do first until it's done to you. Uh, it, it's a mindset that we begin to adopt, males do, uh, on the playground. It's uh, in the classroom. It's it's basically, hey, race you to here. Uh, I bet I could throw that further than you. What'd you get on the test? There's a thousand ways where our young men are constantly seeing if they measure up. And they don't even know what up is. Uh, they, just, they, they just are trying to compare themselves to get an idea of where I fit in some overall scheme of boyhood. Because it's not manhood. I have no idea what a man is. I just know what bigger is. I don't know what a man is. I know bigger. So let me start and stop from there. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's interesting because, uh, as I've told you before, I moved a lot growing up, you know, every year and a half, two years, I was in a different city. And I don't even remember who told it to me when I was in elementary school. I know it wasn't my father because my father was not a man who resorted to violence or believes in violence. But somebody told me that what you have to do is the first week in a new school, you need to pick somebody and go fight them. And that way you wouldn't be bullied. And that was, you know, the advice that I was given in elementary school. 
you know, and at that point, you know, I don't know if I was in my second or third elementary school, but um, I remember doing it. And I remember that it helped that I wasn't then the the one that was always being picked on, right? Because I was the new kid. So, you know, I think that there are lessons. Yeah, Charlie. Does that not bring a striking resemblance to what prisoners tell themselves when they go to prison? Yeah, I uh, haven't been to prison yet, but um, I, well, I've, yeah, I uh, haven't the either. Story, the I, stories I hear, yeah, yeah. I've seen it depicted and I've read about it from firsthand accounts that that's the advice a lot of veteran prisoners give to new prisoners. Find somebody and make a fight and make it, you know, state your case, even if you get beat up, that supposedly makes a case for something. I, it's wrong in the sense that it's one approach, sure. It's one approach. Well, and that's my that's my point is it's not the right approach and it's not what we should be teaching our young boys. But to your point, uh, you know, in prison, in the schoolyard, you know, my guess is, is this mentality, is this old school approach to how to to fit in and not be the low man on the totem pole? Is that the de rigueur? approach for men in any new situation. I mean, I've, clearly it's not that way in the corporate world, but I sometimes wonder, maybe it's not fist fighting, but it's something else. <laughs> I don't know what world you were in, dude, but <laughs> it's warfare and it's just polite. True. True. I, Jared, I saw I saw you react when I said that uh, it's not fist fighting in the corporate world, but clearly you had a reaction to that as well. Yeah, not fist fighting with fists, but uh, you know, um, fist fighting with something else—words or uh, knowledge or um, some kind of suppression. That's my experience of it so far. Uh, Cap, you have more experience in the corporate world specifically than I do, but I, I have felt in, um, many times where uh, it's, it's a direct confrontational approach and uh, the, the the pursuit of the ladder, climbing the ladder, whatever that might be. So, uh, Jaron, anything else that you want to just add as we, you know, any insight that you have on why it is that, you know, men seem to either be drawn to violence or find themselves as, you know, thinking that that's a suitable uh, and acceptable answer for, you know, how to present their emotions? Yeah, I, I don't know that I have any insight to add. I have a thought or a feeling within my own experience. Um, I, you know, I was in elementary school when the Gulf War happened, and uh, my my oldest brother is ten years older than me, and he was uh, in the Air Force and was in Iraq during the time, and he would come back on leave. Um, and each time he was a changed guy, he was much more aggressive, much more violent each time, um, and and so. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a judgmental statement about the military or, or, or its worth or goodness or any of those things. But um, my, my stepdad was in the military. My brother was in the military. My best friend from high school was in the military. And uh, stories of each of them after leaving home to go to boot camp to do whatever they did, none of them were on the front lines of combat but would come back in a much more aggressive way than they ever were prior to that. And so I can't help but think that there's this connection now between these men that have these experiences that they can't communicate to anyone, returning home angry and irritated and frustrated or, or whatever, and making some larger connection between these men who are men that were, were um, promoting and praising, you know, thank you for your, your service. Thank you for our freedom. Thank you for those kinds of things. And, and this idea that guns are how those individuals are, are heroes. And so if I can um, do what my dad did or what this human did or whatever, then maybe people will think I'm a hero as well. And I don't know if there's a direct connection. I'm, I'm a researcher. I haven't done any research about the correlation of these things specifically. But from my perspective, watching now my son's friends who have fathers or, or uncles or whatever that are in the military, 
they are much more um, interested in that level of play than my son is, who has no direct connection to the military any longer. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. You know, we're recording this the day after the first public hearings on the January 6th incident. We try to make this for everyone. It's not meant to be a political podcast, but you know, the some of the footage of that incident that we saw or those of us who watched it saw last night on the television. Uh, it just struck me how animalistic it it looked, you know, like, you know, they had and it wasn't clearly it wasn't just men who were involved in that. But it reminded me of uh, stories I had heard from people that in my family who had participated in uh, one war or another about that uh, almost feverish need for violence that sometimes happens when you know you're in, in, in their case scared for their life or in um, you know very scary situations. So interesting uh, kind of analogy. I mentioned a little bit about my. Uh, youth and uh, growing up and and moving around and partly how that affected my sense of masculinity. But thought maybe we would take a few minutes and just explore this a little bit, uh, a, a little bit further. Yeah, I know when I was growing up, images of the male archetype were everywhere, from the male Marlboro Man to the Six Million Dollar Man, and Charlie, you you know, came around a little bit before me, but imagine that, you know, many of those same types of archetypes were were there and present for your young years. I benefited a bit from growing up in a house with three sisters, uh, a father who traveled quite a bit, so I was the supposed man of the house while growing up, but my sisters, especially my um, oldest sister, literally beat into me how insignificant that designation was in, in her eyes. It was all in good fun, except when it wasn't. Uh, but my, my youngest sister, on the other hand, called me Prince Darling because of the different treatment she perceived me getting for being male. And in truth, there was some of that. You know, I worked from the time that I was 14 years old in restaurants. And so on the weekends, I'd frequently be working till one or two in the morning while she had a 10 p.m. curfew. Uh, so growing up, there were signals that I got both from society, from people whispering in my ear on how to handle being new in school and and from even within my own family that there were some different rules for men. I I was very fortunate to have a loving and female counterbalance to some of that from my sisters. So I'd like to think that while that image of the male as protector and provider was certainly present, it was toned down a bit by the, the careful oversight of my three sisters and from having a very independent mother. But definitely that fragile male ego um, was was still there for me uh, in my upbringing. Charlie, I imagine you probably have stories of your father asking you to skin the dinosaurs, but um, what? <laughs> what? Uh, tell tell you me. Couldn't, you could not resist. <laughs> I couldn't. It's been too long, man. I haven't seen you for weeks. It's been a half hour. You've done very well. Very well. <laughs> Thank you. Now. So tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and you know where your sense of maleness came from. Honestly, uh, it's so it is archaic, and I, I really don't think it's relevant to to this current uh, conversation. Just from my point of view, uh, it would be so hard to make it relevant for anybody at this day and age. What I do have is uh, some thoughts that I jotted down because. There's been a lot going on, and, and it seems to me that 
when you said what we teach or what young boys are taught. Yeah. I, I... Uh oh. I think Charlie froze up on us. So, Jaron, while we're waiting for while we're waiting for him to uh, reconnect, why don't you pick it up for us and maybe tell? He said his upbringing is not relevant. You're a lot younger than either of us, so tell me a little bit about where you got your your sense of maleness. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to hear your story a little bit, Cap, uh, as Charlie maybe comes back on here. But I I had sort of the opposite. I have one sister who was younger than me, but but two brothers, and uh, my brothers were hunters, and um, uh, I mentioned the other one was in the military, and uh, so my they always connected deeply with my stepfather in those things, working outside or construction or building or whatever. And I always watched my mom serve the family, whether it was cooking or whatever. And so I would spend all of my time inside with my mom, mostly because I wanted to make brownies so I could eat them. But like, ultimately I, I engaged more of that experience and then felt heat from the other three men in my family about the fact that I wasn't interested in being outside doing the stuff that they were doing, whatever that might've been. And so that really informed who I was for much of my life. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. So Charlie, when you dropped out, you were going to share some, some thoughts. Thank you. I'm sorry. That, uh, yeah. Don't No, I had to read you, man. Yeah. So, so the idea for me is, is that, I don't feel like we're really taught overtly, explicitly much. Uh, we 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 absorb a lot of information. We uh, piece together uh, understandings from limited pieces of information. Speculation among peers, among other things, uh, runs rampant. You know, from ages like five through eighty-five. And uh, so we're we're constantly uh, trying to assess where we stand in relationship to uh, other people that we think we might respect. This early on was called hero worship, or, or find somebody you admire and kind of model your life after uh, their. Outsides is the best way I could put it. Like, try to behave like they're behaving, and maybe you'll feel like they're feeling. Now, I assumed they were happy. I discovered time and time and time and time again throughout my life that the people I modeled myself after were not happy. They were famous for something, they were doing something that people were applauding at the time. But internally, I read about their private lives and they were not happy. So I came to understand that what I was taught was to drive my body or my talents to their utmost, actually to their breaking point, in order to build up what I considered to be my potential or my endurance. This was going to mark me as a man with uh, intention, determination, ambition, uh, matched with uh, as much talent or as much luck as uh, nature and or circumstances provided. That was my job. Exploit the out of myself. That was my job, but, but that drive me. So the problem is most men and most people now do find that breaking point. It is not, however, where they thought it would be. And there are a lot of broken men out there who have brokenness inside because they could not live up to their own lofty, unreasonable expectations for themselves. So they feel by the time they're, hmm, I don't know, 20, 18, that life is already passing them by. 
they're already never going to be as smart or as fast or as good or as, as the other guy that they see like he got born with all the advantages. I got born with all the disadvantages, whatever it's whatever. So again, it's more comparing and then it's more competing and then it's more deciding I don't measure up. Yeah, and clearly, uh, I mean, we say it all the time, social media has only made that problem a lot worse because everybody's like, comparing. Dislike. Yeah, everyone's comparing, you know, competing for the thumbs up or the thumbs down these days. And so that right. that part of it is certainly not just a male phenomenon, but you know, I do think there is a component of um, what you're talking about in how some of this plays out in violence or the need to control and dominate people around them. You know, I think that there is this need that if they're never going to measure up in the court of public opinion, then they're darn well going to measure up in their little fiefdom, um, you know, and they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that they have control and dominance in, in that situation. Uh, Jaron, it looks like you had something you wanted to, to jump in with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, along those similar lines, Charlie, for me, you know, I grew up watching Michael Jordan and, and Mark McGuire and some of these like sporting things because I didn't know Mark McGuire's chase for um, Roger Maris's home run record in a single season. You know, watching Mark McGuire with his humongous biceps and I had these friends that would go to the weight room all the time. And if I would eat dinner at their house, they would they would put their hands behind their um, their head and like practice flexing their biceps at the at the dinner table and, and their you know parents or friends or whatever would all oogle and ah at their at their muscles. And you know, Michael Jordan was at the pinnacle of, of success in his way. But then we learn later that you know he's punching people in practice. And this is no um you know ill intent on on these athletes, but they're pushed and we all are too to to the extremes of our abilities. And we're not quite sure how to find other avenues for some of that angst or experience or emotion. And, um, and, and then what do you do with this as a developing human being uh, when you're trying to figure out what your space in the world is and you aspire to be some of these people? And so I just, I, I just want to say, Charlie, I, I resonate with, with what you say in many of those spaces there. Yeah. But what we have learned is uh, that when we have a good coach or a good teacher, or a good instructor in whatever activity we're involved in, that every teacher or every good coach or every instructor, even if it's an art instructor or a music instructor or what a dance, it doesn't matter. The person who tells us about ourselves is the person who says, don't worry about the other guy. Don't worry about what they're doing over there. Don't worry about how fast they are, how they're drawing their apple or what they're doing over there. Focus on what you're doing here. What do you like? Where's your swing? What colors do you like? So, so it, it takes the focus off of what are they doing over there and puts it onto what and who am I discovering about me? And that's where I feel like I have a true teacher. Now, it could be a coach as a true teacher. It could be anybody as a true teacher but they're teaching me how to get in touch with me because I don't know who me is at six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I got no clue what a me is even. Go be yourself. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. And, and then if I am an evolving and developing and progressing, maturing, going through stages individual at five, six, seven, eight for the rest of my life, I'm never the same man twice. I'm like, who am I keeps changing. So, Jared, for, oh, for your son, I, obviously you want to be a role model for your son. But does he look at this age? To, is he looking externally for role models as well? What, uh, what do you tell him as he looks at, you know, whether it's sports stars or uh, he's probably not on TikTok yet, but, you know, where is he looking for role models? 
Uh, yes, YouTube mostly. I mean, all these all these individuals that seem to have hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw at whatever they want to in this very very edited video that he they have, and this is what he sees and thinks. Oh, this is what I want to be. And so he's developed his own YouTube uh, game or like channel, like not a, a specific channel, but he's got his logo built out. He's got the theme song in his brain about what the the YouTube uh, channel is going to do and what the letters are going to do at the beginning of the YouTube. And so uh, these are the things that that we're wrestling with in our own household about how this individual may not have $100,000 to throw at anything at any point, but it maybe looks to you like he does because you don't see anything else. And so I have to fill in some of the gaps that he's avoiding. He doesn't look outside of me very much until I get... Uh, angsty or stressful in my own life. And then he's like, oh, this isn't helpful. I need to go find something else. Um, and then I have to recognize that and bring that back uh, to him and, and realize that, oh yeah, I need to be here more involved, more in tune. Um, but he's not that interested in sports. And so his outputs are really, I try to get um, fathers of his friends involved if I can. So we'll go out to the baseball field or uh, to the movies or whatever. And just so he can see other positive men just in the like, circumstance like uh, circumstances that he finds himself in and generally that's been helpful although even then if the individual has a, a big beard or something like that he's like i'm a little bit scared of that guy so it's navigating all of these pieces that come with just being a, a young person yeah charlie and i have talked about before how sports can be an outlet and it can be a good representation of competition and it can be a bad representation of, of competition. I will say for me, when my boys were growing up, um, probably more so for my oldest than my youngest, because by the time my uh, youngest got to his teens, I was, um, you know, traveling every week. And, uh, and so it made it a little bit more difficult from a timing perspective. But um, I know that when my boys were growing up, I would take them out on the golf course and, you know, not a huge golfer, but especially when my oldest son got to be in his teens, it was the only time I could get hours of uninterrupted one-on-one -on -one time with him. And, um, you know, it led to some great conversations and also... Uh, taught me a lot of restraint because if I wanted to be a good role model for him, probably the worst place in the world for me to take him was on a golf course. Um, but uh, it certainly, certainly made that me... was a challenge. Yes. <laughs> it was a challenge. So, guys, let's um, let's shift the focus a little bit to uh, emotional intelligence. And you know, for me, some of the men that I've known, and in fact, even myself, for probably longer than I care to admit, assume that that if they can control their own emotions, then they're successfully managing their emotions. But actually what they're doing is just repressing their emotions, right? So when you repress those feelings, it actually makes it harder to either assess or relate to the feelings of others. You know, one of the things that struck me as I was doing a little bit of prep for our discussion today was you know, emotional IQ definitely is not set for life. It's not one of those things that, um, you know, you you reach an, a seven on the scale of one to 10 of emotional IQ, and that's going to be it for the rest of your life. Just as people can get smarter, they can also develop more emotional intelligence. But here's where Charlie earns that big paycheck for this podcast. Don't Don't spend it all in one place, Charlie. Because he's been right all along. Therapists say that to develop emotional intelligence, we need to focus our attention on emotions, our feelings, both our own and other people's. So, Charlie, this notion of emotional intelligence in many ways echoes a lot of what you talk about. And I'm curious in the, uh, and we always you know, want to make sure that everything is confidential and we're not speaking of um, any one person in particular, but in the work that you have done with individuals, coaching, advising, counseling, 
Um, have you noticed certain things, certain blind spots for men that appear more frequently than in your work with with women? Yes, and 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 this is a big uh, <laughs> this is a big limb to go out on, and I don't know how strong it is. This is something nice. I don't know how thick it is, but I will say this: <laughs> men have a much harder time asking for help because they think it's weakness. Women, as my understanding, come from a place that help is what is healthy. Asking for help is the healthiest thing to do when what you're doing is more than what you can do. A man would rather die trying to do it by himself than ask another man to help. Now, he'll take help if the other man says, hey, you need a hand with that? You go, oh, do you mind? I mean, I'm just literally bleeding as I'm trying to do something. And somebody's standing there watching, just like waiting for me to ask. And I won't ask. And I'll be sitting there struggling, saying I shouldn't ask. It's my job. I have to do this. They're not here to work, you know, with me. Even though if they're my friend, they'll be saying, hey, let me help. I'll be like, no, 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 it's all right. I got it. It's like, what is so hard? And right there is the difference I find between genders in general. Yeah, no, I agree and certainly have been uh, at fault for that as well. You know, I think that that's true both of the physical side as well as the, the mental side and emotional side, right? So, right. Up and down, up yep. and down. Yeah. Even even about my religious beliefs. You know, I'm, I'm, I know what I believe and that's it. I know, you know, I took it a little bit from here. I took it a little bit from there and, 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 and or I threw it all out. Whatever it is. You were right when you said, I am the king of my fiefdom. And I don't care if it's an island of two or three. They listen to me. Because, because, because I'm a toxic male. That's why. So, Jaron, in the work that you have done, and I mean, please explain, you know, how your work gives you uh, some view into this uh, on the criminal justice side. But, um, you know, you're dealing with people who are coming from uh, places of addiction. You're dealing with people who have entered the criminal justice system for one reason or another. Is there any link that you have seen between some of the stuff that we're talking about, whether it's toxic masculinity or whether it's low emotional intelligence uh, and, and some of what you see? I need, to, I need to caveat a little bit with the, the answer is yes, um, but only from a qualitative uh, standpoint, meaning to say my own experience, you know, the indicators that the evaluation firm that I've worked on is, is more about helping the program itself figure out if the program is doing what the program said they were to be doing. And so there's no there's no empirical evidence necessarily that I'm speaking from connected to the, the men that I observe and interact with. Yeah, um, spoken, spoken like a researcher. That's perfect. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and, and so, I, yes, the answer is yes. Most of the, the men um, that I that I get a chance to interact with have been involved in substance use addiction since early in their lives, 13, 14, 15. And many of these men, not all, but many are now 50, 60, 70, still trying to figure out what do I do with any of this stuff that we call life besides turn to meth or besides turn to heroin or cocaine? And it's an interesting thing to watch and observe. I live very close to the court services building in, in our town, and I watch many of them even just walk by my house. They don't know who I am necessarily because I'm an external evaluator that just gets to observe from a distance with a, a very privileged opportunity to do so. And yet I watch them with 
often female friends, and they're often yelling and screaming at these individuals as they're walking by my house for whatever reason or another. And um, what I'm learning is that these individuals don't know how to dive deeper. And, and, and Charlie, you had mentioned earlier that the men don't know how to ask for help. And I think that's an accurate statement. But I also want to, to say that I think, you know, in the ways that as, as children, we learned that this is my elbow and when my elbow hurts, here's what I need to do to fix my elbow. What we don't get to learn is that this is my uh, whatever that hurts emotionally. We're not given that language to understand the spaces with which we feel inside or where to go to help heal those things. And what I'm watching is that the things that most of these individuals that I get to work with do to heal that inside is turn to substance. And this is not a podcast about substance abuse or anything like that. But when you turn to substance, then it often derails much of other parts of your life. Um, and then that all compounds itself. Those feelings internally compound themselves even more, which then creates this feedback loop where you're turning to more substance and more substance and think, well, at least I'm in jail because I don't have to fight with this woman who I have seven kids with or seven women that I each have one kid with. And I don't know what to do with any of that. And so what I'm seeing is that um, in the criminal justice system, it's really interesting. There are a couple of judges that are really quite good that spend lots of time and actually as an indicator for the work that we do within the drug court. One of the key indicators of success is how much time does the judge spend with this participant over the course of their time in the program. And if the judge is willing to sit each week and say, how was your week? How was work this week? Tell me about your kids. That research does show that there's greater chances of success for these individuals to suppress their, uh, not suppress, but to, to work through their substance abuse addiction issues and find the strategies that they need to manage other aspects of their life, whether it's treatment, um, individual therapy, um, those kinds of things. And so, uh, I do think that there's this deep connection between knowing how to take care of the things that are going on inside of us and success longer term. And as Charlie said earlier, having someone that walks with us to help us understand that. I read a book several years ago um, that, that referenced like positive male um, mentorship or attention older male attention it equates to essentially a pilot that leaves early on in the morning on a certain flight and then communicates back to the, all the pilots that are making that same flight throughout the day to let them know, here's where you're going to experience turbulence. You might want to come up uh, a thousand feet or you might want to drop down a little bit or you know head, head east or whatever. And, and that was the prime uh, opportunity for me to see like, yes. That's what we all need at some deeper grassroots level is just to know where the turbulence is and then to know and rely on our own tools to get up and around or down and below those turbulent times to, to understand how to make the journey be a successful journey for me and all of the passengers that I bring along. So that, that's a, uh, a great analogy. I love that. This is the point in the show where we start to focus in a little bit on, okay, so how do we get there? What do we do to, if, if we assume that one of the things that's missing in uh, male development is this uh, education around emotional intelligence, what it really means to be a uh, functional male adult, how do we do that? Any any thoughts, Charlie? Well, we're we're all functioning. We just some of us are making messes, and some of us are not. And when I say making messes, like intentionally going out and creating chaos and and turmoil, because we can. Because we're mad, because we were taught this is go out and make your mark, make it rain, you know, just like because you know, we don't have okay. what someone else has. Because yeah, whatever, whatever, just just go, you know. And and the more you can grab, the more uh, people say, oh, you know, like he's very successful. Okay, now my wife's chasing me down the street with a golf club, but I'm very successful. 
I want to understand there's a disconnect between how I appear and how I feel. And men are more concerned with keeping up their image than they are in getting touch with what's real. Because that's scary. That's more scary than bleeding, is getting in touch with my feelings. Because I'm pretty sure they're off the charts. That's what I believe, that if I really started feeling my feelings, I would blow gaskets, blow my mind, and go off and, and do, and that's what's happening. Because they're not in touch with their feelings. They're coming out violently sideways. I mean, disturbingly violently sideways. Because they don't know why they're so frustrated, angry, and disappointed. No direction. No real love. Just do, do, do. And every single person did not come here for a job. This is not why we came to be human, is to work. We're here to love each other. And then, eh, we need to eat. Eh, we need to, we need to, you know, we make stuff. We have fun. We dance, we sing, we share, we paint. We go lay in a field and count daisies. I'm telling you, when we all cooperate and share, work isn't work anymore. It's community that just gets things done. Yeah, no, I, uh, I hear you. I um, am perpetually driven to get to the how. And, <laughs> you know, how do we get to that idyllic state? So, you know, what are some things that we can do to to enter yeah yeah you don't turn an aircraft carrier around in a bathtub true it's going to take time we have just to set a different course and take our time in turning into that direction away from the cliffs is good enough for now i don't need to know where we're going to end up eventually but away from the cliffs, because that's where we're all headed. We're going off the cliffs together, saying, how are we going to stop this? And I'm telling you, everyone has to lean in and change the way we're leaning. <laughs> right I, lo I, I love this. It, it, no one can see this except Jaron and I because we're uh, in a Zoom-like environment. And as Charlie's saying, lean in, he's turning his camera. So we're getting a uh, kaleidoscope effect. On uh, I called it a visual aid. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you get but the I, idea, Cap. It's, it's not a... It's not a one, two, three, how do we do this? It is a decision that where we're headed is not where we want to go. Right there is all we need to do. And then so we stop doing what we're doing and start asking what else can we do different? Well, Every one of us. Yeah, it's what it's what we say about this podcast, right? It's getting a little bit better every day. And so, yes, that's that's one answer. But, Jaron, I'm interested from your perspective. You know, I've got a, uh, a friend that I our kids grew up together and I respect the hell out of him because he's been a part of the solution for years. He's you know, he did Y guides. He did, you know, all of these activities where he's helping teach a generation of young men how to to be a better person and you know what it means and and so i i really respect that there are people out there that are doing their part i i'm wondering jaron um you know what types of things have you seen that you know people might be able to get involved in or be a part of the solution 
I think listening to this podcast, I want to I want to first start with with what you all are doing here today is very much very very important to this conversation leading to the space at large, because if you're willing to talk about it, then it presents an opening for others that might have a thought in the back of their mind that they maybe want to talk about it, and that there might be someone that they can say something to in that way. And so I want to say thanks to that end. But in terms of my work historically, um, you know, there's a there's a national um, organization called College Advising Corps that I've worked with historically that's working with uh, first generation low income students predominantly, but not exclusively, to help them navigate their path out of high school to the future and helping them understand what it is that they're seeking for and helping them find answers to the things that they are looking for post high school. And um, I get a call yesterday from one of my former advisors out of the blue. He's in Hawaii at a summer camp this summer. And he called me just to check in. He said, I just wanted to see how you are. And I've talked about life. He's like, well, how does that feel? And this is a 25 year old looking at me, asking me how I'm feeling about something and, and really interested in listening. And, I, and so I, I want to say that I think what you all are doing is really impacting much of it. And, and it's impacting me as a 40-year-old, and it allows me to impact a 25-year-old who then will impact my child or my son's cohort of, of, of peers that grow and develop in, in their ways of realizing that this isn't okay at any level. And so I don't know that I have any more answers than Charlie does, Cap, and I'm sorry about that in terms of like the very particulars, other than... If you're honest with yourself about it, it allows me to be free to be honest with myself about it. It allows my son to be honest with himself about it. Charlie and I had a good conversation on Tuesday um, where he informed me or shared with me that I can tell my son, you have open access, administrator privilege to any question you want of me any time of the day. And we've talked about it six times since Tuesday alone where Malachi is like, oh yeah, I have access to you. Yes, you do, anything, what do you wanna know? And so I think what you all are doing here and what I imagine you're doing in other aspects and circles of your own lives is providing access to people to say, what is that thing? Tell me about that. Um, and it's it leads to conversations that are bigger and beyond anything that we can imagine. Cap, you talking to your sons about it. I imagine um, your sons, if they're athletes, like you said, or, or wherever they spend their times, have, have streams of influence that you'll never even be able to comprehend. But you've impacted that, you know, 80 million people potentially just by having that one conversation with your with your son about it. And I hope to do the same in the circle of influence that my son and the circle of influence that his friends will continue to have. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great piece of uh, advice and a great way of, of looking at it. And, um, you know, that kind of butterfly effect, if you will, of uh, touching a person here or there and hoping that it can lead to some change around the world. So I want to make sure that we uh, end on a positive note because we, <laughs> Charlie's, Charlie's shaking his head, because we've, we've been kind of serious uh, the last couple of episodes. And Jaron, I want to ask you um, about your son and the, the question is around something that I noticed. So, you know, my son just, my youngest son just graduated from college. One of the things that I was so impressed with as he was going to high school and I will be the first to, to tell you that this comes from a place of privilege and I understand that. And so it, may very well not be the situation for everybody. But one of the things that I was so impressed with, with his circle of friends, is how accepting they were of other people. And whether that's people that identify, you know, a different way from a gender perspective, or people of different races, or people of different belief systems. And it was just always so encouraging to me to see that he and his circle of friends welcomed those people and, you know, frankly, taught me a little bit, too, about accepting people. And so I would I would tell you that the learning can go both ways. But I'm I'm wondering, you know, with your son and I know that I kind of baited the question by saying I want to end on a positive note. But with your son, 
Uh, have you have you seen something similar? Every single day, uh, he brings something home for me to think about in a, in a deeper way. His school um, ended yesterday, but um, he brought a, a big stack of papers home, and I got to go through them. And there were some questions that he had about a book that they were reading, where he could reflect on the the history of uh, Virginia specifically, but the nation at large, and identify where where power plays in and where uh, his opportunities as a as a privileged white man white boy now, but soon to be white man exist. And for him to think about that as a nine-year-old, right, it becomes this this um, native uh, ability, almost like the digital nativeness that he has that none of us will ever have, um, where he can understand fully his space and ownership of the world and know that he can be a fulcrum of acceptance and, and welcoming for anybody else that may be a little bit different, regardless of, of what that uh, specific thing is. Um, and uh, I think how Malachi, uh, my son, portrays it is in the, the circle of friends, as you said about your son, Cap, and the, the, the groups of people that he brings in, various race and ethnicities, uh, various languages spoken at home, opportunities um, in terms of socioeconomic status. And there's a nine-year-old, right, that's a little bigger than he can understand or like choose to do intentionally, but it's a nat like a natural component of who he is as a human being to, to like, convene people essentially. And so it's just fun to watch and learn and think, if he can do that, why can't I do that? These people walk by my house or I see them at work or I see them at the coffee shop all the time. He can go up and say hi and welcome uh, as many people as he wants to. And I can do the exact same thing anytime I want to. And that is a beautiful way to end the segment today. So uh, there is hope in our youth. Charlie, There's no hope in us. Well, you know, I had I had to say when when Jaron was talking about uh, his son having a digital nativeness that we would never have, I thought, you know, you were pretty impressive the way you turned the camera to uh, to lean into the conversation. I appreciated that. <laughs> All right, Charlie, thank you very much for uh, doing this remotely, Jaron. I am so thankful that you were a part of this today. Um, wonderful contributions and really appreciate uh, your voice and make sure you tell your son that uh, he played a big part in this episode as well. And Jaron, I'd like to add that you are welcome to any time to join us. Um, you are, how do I put it? An equal among equals. And you know, you come and, and we talk and the more the merrier we're talking about having a live stream at some point in time who knows what happens uh all i know is when we open up and this is the difference now between masculinity that um will be helpful it's it's open and it's responsive and it's inclusive masculinity that is uh strict and rigid and and uh, proscriptive is not personal. It, 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 is, uh, it is tackling an uh, idea and forcing it on somebody as opposed to expressing an understanding and asking them, do they agree with it? Or do they feel what it is you're saying or understand what it is you're trying to point them towards as opposed to you must do it this way or you're bad or you're wrong or you're in trouble it's like you know what there's lots of ways how are you what were you trying to do tell me about you and Jaron, you're so right. Every relationship that's healthy is a two-way relationship. If I think all of my information is running downstream to my younger uh, iterations, I am absolutely mistaken. I have to be on par with their spirit and my spirit are equally loved and equally welcomed on this planet. They happen to be in my care. I I like that idea, but I don't want them to be under my control. I want them to be under my care. 
that's what true masculinity is to to me all right thanks guys appreciate it i love you thanks to jaron for coming on today and sharing his unique viewpoints it was great having another voice in the mix if you enjoyed the conversation today Please do all that stuff that all podcasters ask you to do. Follow or subscribe, rate and review, yada, yada, yada. You know the drill, but most importantly, please share the podcast with others. Thank you for listening. For Charles and for me, we hope your journey is filled with wonder and that your heart grows stronger than your might. Be good to each other.